The book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 5 to 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Join me now in prayer. Oh, Father God, you are the Almighty One, the only God we can turn to in our time of need. We praise you and worship you, Lord, for all you are and all you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for this word, and we look forward to the teaching that Pastor Tom has prepared for us. Anoint our hearts, anoint his words. Prepare us to hear a special new revelation of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It is great to be with you guys here this morning. We are continuing our series entitled Draw Near, which is a study in the book of Hebrews. Um, as we've talked about throughout, the reason why the series is entitled Draw Near is because it really gets to the important heart of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. He's talking to converted Jews uh, who've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he's trying to reveal to them the need to continue to press forward in their relationship in faith in Jesus Christ, to not return back to the practices of old, the law of old. And he's trying to let them know that because of this new relationship through Jesus Christ, you have an opportunity to be in a relationship with God that you didn't have before. That there aren't all of these rituals and there isn't all of this law that is required. There isn't intermediaries between you and the presence of God required because Jesus Christ himself becomes that intermediary. And so his encouragement to them is, you can draw near. Don't set that aside. And his encouragement to us is, you can draw near. Now, we just had an important appearance of draw near in the text we discussed last week. It appeared in chapter 4, and it, and it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This, for me, is an incredibly important place that we see the phrase draw near. As I said, I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, we're continuing our series, but within the series, we've been having a conversation over the last three to four weeks um, that the author of Hebrews is trying to have with, with his audience, that he's trying to have with the Israelites, that he's trying to have with us. 
It is a specific conversation that is important to understand because it builds on one another. So much of the text that we've been walking through over the last three weeks, including the text we read this morning, is understood. It, 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 is, it is memorized. It is memorable. But so often, the, the memory of these texts come individually. They, they come with individual thoughts. But the truth is, to fully understand what we're hearing, and particularly what we're going to study today, you have to understand the, con- the conversation in progression that they are feeding into one another. The conversation I'm referring to begins at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, and it revolves around the idea of finding the promised rest that we can have in Jesus Christ. He's talking to these Jews who've converted to Christianity, and he's saying, listen, there is a rest that can be found in Jesus Christ. It's the rest that, that Christ himself spoke about when he says, come to me, all you who are, who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's the rest that the, the, that the book of Philippians speaks about that says, come in, in your anxiety, come in your anxiety and your concern and lay them at the feet of God through prayers and supplications. Make your requests known to him. And the peace that passes all understanding will renew your hearts and minds. So the author of Hebrews is saying to them and saying to us that there is a rest that is to be found in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, but you can miss that rest. In the same way the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness missed their rest, the promised rest of the promised land. You miss it by not hearing the voice of God, by not taking heed of the voice of God who is speaking to you. He has a rest, and just like the Israelites wandering in the desert who never found that rest, you can miss out if you don't listen to what he says and obey. Don't turn a deaf ear. Don't harden your hearts to the voice of God like they did in the wilderness. Because he is speaking to you, leading you. Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, divining the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts of men. As we explained in the past, that, that is meant to bring us into an intimate relationship with God. It's meant to emphasize the intimate word that God has for us, that when we come to him, when he's speaking to us through, through his Holy Spirit into our hearts, when he's speaking to us through the prophetic words, the words of wisdom, words of knowledge of the prophetic, when he's speaking to us in his word, the Bible, we're to hear that and respond. He's emphasizing, as I say here, this intimate personal relationship available through the new covenant. And then as he's talking about this, he reveals to us that this is because we have a high priest who empathizes with us, who sympathizes with us. Because he experienced what we've experienced before he entered into, into glory. He walked this life. And so he understands what we go through. So we can draw near. And it's interesting because why does he call us to draw near? So that we can find help, that we can receive mercy and grace in our time of need. And then from there, what he talks about in chapter 4, he begins then in chapter 5 to talk about the nature of this high priest that gave us this access. How, How he was perfect, not needing additional sacrifices for his own sin like the priests of the past. How he was appointed to this priesthood, not naming himself, but God himself saying he would be priest, the perfect priest, the eternal priest. 
This priest who would sympathize with us, but who resisted temptation. And because of that, he overcame sin, becoming our perfect example and perfect intercessor. Now, I'm reviewing this, and for some of you who've been here the last few weeks, this might feel redundant, but the reason I'm reviewing this is it's important to see the progression if you're going to understand the text with which um, we read earlier and that we're going to look at today. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, guys, you are in danger of missing the rest that God has for you in this troubled wilderness, and you will miss it the same way the Israelites did by not hearing the word of God and obeying. He's not speaking this to to condemn you, but in fact, the point is that Christ was to be the perfect intermediary bringing us to the presence of God. So draw near to God through Jesus and find help in your time of trouble so that you can overcome the temptations of the world. And out of that context, the writer lifts up Jesus as the example of, we are to follow in the text that we read earlier. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now I want us to stop there because here's where the author of Hebrews explains to us the human experience of Christ as an example to us. One of the central functions of the incarnation of Christ, one of the the critical functions of God the Son taking on the flesh of man, was to set before us an example of what a godly life looks like. To show us in the the life of the flesh that, that he was walking in, to show us how to live this life of the flesh that we live in a way that honors God, able to do it through the Spirit and communion with the Father. Now, for many of us, this is a a tricky doctrinal topic. Because what I'm talking about here is that, that we believe And the belief that we have is one that is orthodox as it relates to Christian doctrine. What we're talking about here is is the nature of Christ here on this earth. The, The example that the author of Hebrews is holding up is Jesus Christ to say this. Jesus Christ in the flesh. Jesus Christ like you in the flesh. Jesus Christ who is in this world who was tempted in all the ways that you are. Who suffered in all the ways that you are. You suffered. Jesus Christ in the flesh. What he's saying is, this is how Jesus lived this life. That he lived his earthly life within the human condition. He understood and experienced what it was like to be human, the frailty of flesh and the frailty of human spirit. He understood what it was like to be hungry and tired, disappointed and discouraged. He understood and experienced pain and rejection, abandonment, and anguish. This is the meaning of the author's phrase, in the days of his flesh. Jesus understood what it was like to live in the flesh. Now, 
as I say, for a lot of people, this becomes this tricky doctrine. Because many of us, as we think about the life that Jesus Christ lived, we lean into the idea that what was different for Jesus, because he was God. That, 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 that although he was human, although he was in the flesh, he, he was God. And so he was able to face these things and overcome these things with his divine helping him. But, but what the, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing, what I think the Bible teaches us, is that's not how Jesus Christ faced his, his experiences in the flesh. But that he faced them all in the same way that we do. And in that was able to set for us an example and how to overcome. He never stopped being divine in his nature, but he did not rely on his divine nature to overcome. Instead, he embraced his humanity and he faced life in the flesh. Philippians 2 gives us some insight into this understanding when Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God to be a, a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Or maybe more clearly understood is how J.B. Phillips translates this verse. For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to the prerogatives as God's equal, but stripped himself of all privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as a mortal man. What he's saying here is he didn't rely on his divinity to face this earth, but willingly modeled the human experience in his human form. He set aside his privilege. He set aside his prerogative in the divine and faced the circumstances of this life in the same way we do. And that leads us to something very important that the author says next. He says, in the days of his flesh, when he would get tired, when he would get discouraged, when in the days of his flesh he would be tempted or suffer, in the days of his flesh when he was disappointed or rejected, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He here holds up Jesus Christ as the example in how to navigate this life in the flesh. Now this is where we see this direct line connecting the description of Christ in the flesh to the admonition to draw near to the encouragement to hear God's voice, to the promise of rest that is found because of the work of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews is telling us, when you are struggling, when you are facing temptation, when you are persecuted or tired or discouraged, you have been given a pathway to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ to find hope and mercy and help and peace and rest. It is the same pathway that Jesus in the days of his flesh took to find hope and help and peace and rest in drawing near to his heavenly father. And he did it through prayers and supplications offered up in tears and in cries. 
He lays out for us that Jesus Christ understood that the key that unlocked the very throne room of grace from which he would receive help was a life of prayer and supplication. Now, as a quick side note, I think it's important to provide clarity as, as it relates to these prayers and supplications that he's offering up. And this is one of the reasons why I felt it's really important for us to walk all the way through and understand the succession of the conversation. A lot of times people can read this and believe that Jesus Christ was offering prayers and supplications through, 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 cries and, through, his crying out, through tears and crying out and see that as a reflection of his role as the intercessor. You can read this separate and go, well, Jesus Christ was offering these prayers on our behalf. But I think if you read, if you continue to read, the text makes it clear that Jesus Christ was praying these prayers in the flesh to receive the strength to overcome and live victorious. As I said, it says he was offering these prayers and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What what he's focusing in on is how these prayers affected Jesus, how it affected his life. He learned obedience through that suffering and being made perfect. And understand something, that phrase being made perfect doesn't, doesn't mean that Jesus at some point wasn't perfect. In fact, what it's most likely referring to is earlier on when he says he was tempted but without sin. So the formula that, that, that Hebrews is laying out for us is that Jesus Christ in the flesh, facing all that we, we face, being tempted in all the ways that we were, understood that to find the help, to find the help that he could receive through, through his heavenly father, through the throne of grace, he would go into prayers and supplications and receive the help that he needed in that way. This is Jesus, this is the declaration that Jesus Christ knowing his state, knowing who he was in his humanity, knowing he was in the flesh, knowing that for him to get the help he needed, he had to be somebody given to prayer, committed to prayer, having the conviction of prayer. For many of us, we continue to choose a very sanitized, intellectualized, academic, philosophical Christian experience. That we, we limit our, our Christian expression, expression to a formula of Christian philosophy. I live my life according to Christian values and ideology. And, 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 and I admit that in many ways there is power and stability and value discovered in that approach. I, I truly believe that, that Christianity is a way of life for sure. But there is a dynamic, interactive, spiritual, dare I say, charismatic posture that is living and active when you press in, when you draw near, when you take the times and the moments and the hours and the days like Jesus did in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit you will find life. And to be even more specific, I want to draw your attention briefly to the little phrase that says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications in loud voice and tears 
to him who could save him from death. When you hear that, I want you to understand, I don't believe that is referring to the resurrection. I believe that is referring to the death that is brought by sin. The temptation of sin referenced earlier and the effects of sin we see all around us. The death brought by sin, death to our hearts, death, death to our spirits, death to our bodies. What it's saying here is that Jesus Christ cried out in tears, prayers and supplications to him who could save him from the death that is brought by sin. He sought refuge and salvation through pressing in, drawing near to the Father, through prayers and supplications with tears and crying out. Now, to me, this is a key point that we have to grasp. See, for many of us, we hear the phrase, draw near. We've titled the, the, the series, Draw Near, and we've emphasized the idea of draw near. And for many of us, we hear that phrase, and, and we don't really know what that looks like. On an intellectual level, on a philosophical level, on even a, a theological level, we embrace the idea, we cheer the idea. We think, yeah, we need to draw near. We need to get closer to God. This is the type of phrase that I use all the time when I'm doing ministry. Guys, you got to press in. And unless we understand and then embrace it on a practical level, it doesn't really mean anything to our faith walk. When we say draw near, practically, what does it mean? Jesus' example, cited here in Hebrews, gives us enough insight into the, ap the practical application of what it means to draw near. How do you draw near? Well, Jesus believed that the key to receiving help from the throne room of grace was prayer. Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It, it is here that we are taught to emulate Christ's, how Christ navigated this life with a commitment to prayer born from the conviction about prayer. When you are in need, when you are in temptation, when you are suffering, you have to have a commitment to prayer born of a conviction about the power of prayer. And when we talk about a commitment to pray, we're not talking about what most of us do. And I don't say that to be um, snide or say that to be critical, but the reality is most of us in our Christian experience limit our prayer to a few moments here and there. Like, we come into a church service, and for many of you guys, as you come to church, and, and here's the reality, is the, the act of coming to church on a Sunday morning is an expression of you saying, I want to draw nearer to God. I want to press in closer to God. And for many of us, the time you will spend in prayer, in your intentional pursuit of closeness with the God, the extent of your, 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 your prayer life is going to be when, when, Kathy, when Kathy bows her head, you bow your head with her. When, when I pray at the end of the service 
and bow my head, you'll bow your head with me. And, it, and, and for many of us, we won't even really engage in that. And again, as I say this, understand, I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just trying to be very practical. That's how most of us as Christians live. And, 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 I, and I say that because one of the things that's always resonated in my mind is years ago, I heard the statistic that, that pastors in America on average spend seven minutes a week in prayer. Think about that. Seven pastors spend seven minutes a week in prayer. That blows my mind because one of the things I know as a pastor is I get paid to pray. <laughs> pastors get paid to pray, right? A lot of you guys give money to the church. The money you guys give to the church pays my salary. If I came to you and I said, hey guys, just so you know, what I do with my time is every day between 9 a.m. and noon, I spend time in my office praying Monday through Friday. There's not a single one of you that would get down on me for that, would you? Most of you are like, you know what? My pastor prays every single day, three hours a day, praise God. Right? Try to do that at your work. So pastors who get paid to pray spend seven minutes a week on average. So I know what the prayer life of American Christians is. Because most pastors don't do anywhere near what we see in the life of Christ. And so I know many of us in the congregation do even less. Jesus Christ didn't choose to face this world, face the challenges and the struggles and the temptations with a throwaway prayer life. He understood that he had to draw on the strength that came by the Holy Spirit. He didn't use his own strength and his own experience, but he was desperate seemingly, believing that this would be his lifeline. Jesus seemed to believe deeply in the power of prayer, so much so that he cried out through tears for the help. In fact, the author uses a, a word, um, a specific word to reinforce the reality, this reality when he says, through prayers and supplications, or the Greek word here is, is hekateria. And, and, I, and I just as a sidelight, I want to bring this back to you. I, I referenced earlier the passage in Philippians that talks about receiving a peace that passes all understanding. And where does he, how does he say that comes? He says, cast all your cares on him, right? Make your requests known to him with prayers and supplications. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will renew your hearts and minds. The very same formula that we see Jesus Christ living here. And this word supplications or hecateria means, I want you to hear what it means to the first century audience. Originally, it described an olive branch intertwined with wood carried by a suppliant. In the Greek culture, the suppliant would hold, would hold and wave to express their desperate prayer and desire. The idea then came to mean that which is urgently requested by somebody. In this case, it is the God-man. What a powerful picture of the depth of Christ's humility and the profundity of his prayers. We get a sense of this in Luke's description of our Lord in Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross, praying so intensely that his sweat was like drops of blood. His heart was broken at the prospect of bearing sin. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
This commentator paints for us a very clear picture of the desperation, the the passion, the conviction that Jesus Christ had that his help would come when he entered into prayer. He had a commitment to prayer because he had a conviction that prayer was the entrance to the throne room of grace from, from where his help would come. And that commitment was profound. Jesus Christ was a man of prayer, a man of prayer and communion with God the Father, Passage after passage after passage speaks to Jesus while in the flesh, withdrawing from the crowd and going to the wilderness to pray. That Jesus, while in the flesh, would would go into the garden alone at night to pray. That Jesus, while in the flesh, would go into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to fast and pray. He was in a habitual, constant, in the flesh, man of prayer. Spurgeon, his commentary on this passage said, Our blessed Lord was in such a condition that he pleaded out of weakness with God who was able to save. When our Lord was compassed with the weakness of the flesh, he was much in prayer. The occasions recorded are numerous, but there, are, there is no doubt nearly, merely a few specimens of a far greater number. Jesus was habitually in prayer. He was praying even when his lips did not utter a sound. His heart was always in communion with the great Father above. The doorway to the throne room of grace where we can find our help in times of trouble is unlocked through a persistent commitment to prayer that is born of our conviction that our prayers make a difference. If we are struggling in our faith walk, if we are struggling in sin, if we are struggling in our faith, day to day, circumstance to circumstance, we've got to ask ourselves whether or not we are following the example of Jesus Christ and being people who have a conviction to pray with a commitment to pray that is able to receive from God that which he has for us. And let me tell you guys something. I preach this message from a place of personal conviction. I'm not preaching this to you guys as if if I stand up here as some paragon. I have have in my life, in my my ministry, have struggled in the area of, of, of targeted prayer, of taking time out of my life. Now, I pray regularly. I pray as I'm driving the car. I pray in, in different circumstances, but it, is very, it has been very rare in the past in my life where I see myself as a prayer. You know, there are, people, there are people who just know how to pray. And one of the failures of my own walk and really of my own ministry has been the fact that, that I've looked around me and I say, well, we got people who are good prayers and they're doing it. I've, I've, said, I've said this before, even from the pulpit about people, like I'm not a great prayer um, and we're blessed because we have people around here. My wife's a great prayer. My wife likes to spend time in prayer, and she presses in, and she seems to have a gift for it. I got uh, Pastor, Pastor Phil's on staff. That's part, of his, that's part of his portfolio. He prays. And so for me, it's always been this idea of like, well, I've got prayers. I don't really have to spend that much time doing it. And I'm going to tell you something. The conviction of the Holy Spirit has come on me over the last few years to say, no, that's, that's not good enough. You have to press in more. You have to find times that you dedicate to being in my presence. 
There is no substitute for your prayer life. You, you, you cannot have someone else fill in for you to receive the power of God. You, you can't have somebody else fill in for you to receive the power of God that is unlocked in your spirit as you draw near in prayer, as you listen to the word of God that is spoken, that, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit and discerns your thoughts and your intentions. You need to hear as you draw near so that God can save you from the death that is found in the sin of this world. As you struggle with sin, draw near like Christ did. As you struggle with discouragement, draw near like Christ did. As you struggle with fear, draw near like Christ did. If you're feeling weak and alone, draw near the throne of grace through a commitment to prayer and receive your help in your time of trouble. This is the example that Jesus Christ set for us. I want you to take this reality. I want you to reflect on the life of Christ. And I want you to compare it to your life. What is your commitment to prayer? The passage we just read describes Jesus Christ as the one who was tempted in all the ways that we are, but didn't sin. The passage we just read said he became perfect because he was one who would draw near to God through prayers and supplications, crying out. If you're struggling today, what does your prayer life look like in comparison to the prayer life of Jesus Christ? How evident is your conviction that prayer makes a difference, that prayer matters? One of the things that, one of the things that is, is so telling, I think, of the state of the American church and, and many of us in this room, I think including myself, is how rare it is we take advantage of the opportunities we have to press into prayer. The, 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 the amount of time that we in pastoral leadership spend trying to figure out how to get the right combination, how to create the right environment, how to do the right thing so that people will feel comfortable coming up to the front and receiving prayer. We have people in the back praying for people because we're like, well, people might not feel comfortable coming to the front and we need the lights at a certain thing and we need the music in a certain way because maybe people will then take the opportunity to step in and receive prayer. I have this feeling that Jesus Christ didn't need the right environment to pray. I have a feeling he prayed anywhere and everywhere whenever he could. We as Christians need to be challenged by looking at our own lives and comparing it to the prayer life of Jesus Christ. Because if we're not willing to step into that place with a conviction and a commitment, it's really no wonder we struggle. What are your times of prayer? What do they look like? How often do they happen? How much much is invested in it? When you have opportunities to pray, do you step into those opportunities? And when you step in, do you have the conviction that my prayer life makes a difference? It is where I will unlock the door to the heavenlies. 
and receive the help that I need. If you are here today with needs, physical needs, financial needs, emotional, spiritual, if you are struggling with temptation, what is your response? Because in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's our example. We are either followers of Jesus Christ or we're not. We either follow him into this place or we don't. It's our choice. That prayer is the key to drawing near and receiving the help that we need in our time of trouble.